Hey, Dame. Yo. Do you happen to have any idea who this episode is brought to you by? Oh, I think I have a clue. I think I do. <laughs> this episode of Ergo is brought to you by Overcast, an independent podcast app that embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. No exclusives, no premium content, no paywalls, just a great podcast app for everyone. And if you know Ergo, we love independent and we love shit not being locked down. So <laughs> so go ahead and get Overcast for free on the App Store. Hey, hey. Hey, we are here. We are here. This is Ergo. It is indeed. I am Damon. I am Kiss. And we are here doing what we do. What is that, Damon? <laughs> I've gotten forgetful over the years. <laughs> Reshaping our city for the more, you know, liberatory and creative. With folks light work. Just, yeah, light work. Um, we are here debriefing the results of the Treatment Not Trauma ballot referendum. If you haven't heard part one yet, we recommend that you do, but I guess you don't have to, but you should. You know? <laughs> <laughs> go on back go on back check out part one come back to us we are here though with home team hero asha rez be spawn ars ars in full effect of the defund cpd campaign and we also have cheryl miller of stop Southsiders together organizing for power and also from the collaborative of community wellness um who has been organizing for mental health advocacy and investment for the past decade we also need to shout out the 33rd Ward Working Families Party and the super homie Rosanna Rodriguez for all of their phenomenal work and their victory and making this campaign possible. Big time. It's exciting to get to talk to these two organizers about the campaign in the days after what amounted to kind of a blowout victory in all three wards. We'll get into it, but uh, voters voted over 90% in favor of the referendum. Uh, you'll hear what that means what the very specific language of that referendum meant and how this fits into a larger fight against the privatization and disinvestment from our public good. Yeah, and, and a quick zoom out. We're going to end the conversation, talk about the details of door knocking and conversations and some of the political history in Chicago that made this moment possible. But also, this moment is an example of the importance of coalition and our movements being intersectional. So these are two movement sects of abolition and mental health advocacy uh, that folks could inaccurately see as separate. And so seeing these two things happen together, I think is a lesson that we can take forward for so many more of our initiatives in the future. All right, y'all. That's all the context you need. Let's debrief. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead and debrief. <laughs> <laughs> Peace. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> we are here. We are excited. We are celebratory. This is glee. Glee. Glee is what I'm feeling. Pride. Glee. Glee. And, uh, <laughs> personified is what we're getting from damon right now <laughs> i i am i am proud i am honored we are here to follow up with an update of all of the phenomenal effort that went into the treatment not trauma initiative with us we have truly two of the most phenomenal organizers but people we got home team 
many time appearer on the show, Asha Ransby Sporn, also known as ARS with us. What's up? And we have the phenomenal organizer Cheryl Miller with us as well. Hey, hey. Hi. (laughs) So so glad to have y'all. So we're gonna start with our 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 tradition, a two-part question centered around time. In this time, whether that's this this day, this week, this season, this hour, this lifetime, however time is coming up for you right now. In this time, how is the world treating you and how are you treating the world? I think that the world is trying me in some ways, but not in ways that I can't fully handle. And I'm in return trusting the world. Yeah. And trying to trust myself, too. I think the world is treating me all right. Right now, although I have to say I did not want to get out of bed this morning, I was like, okay, can I just keep going back to sleep? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, relatable. I think for our audience as well. Yeah. (laughs) So at some point, I was like, well, I have to be at least, you know, vertical for a little while so that I don't come on (laughs) with groggy voice. Yeah, the couch is the compromise that we're yeah. saying behind it. You know, you met us in the middle here. That's right, that's more than right, enough. Right, right. Yeah, so that so that's it. And now I guess it's kind of I've been glued to watching election returns. So so I'm kind of in that in-between phase right now. <laughs> yeah, so let, let, let's jump in right there. So for folks listening, whenever you hear this, we are recording this three days after the 2022 midterm elections. Um, and three days after the treatment, not trauma uh, referendum was up for vote in three wards in the city of Chicago. And so for you two as organizers that made this possible, how are you feeling right now? What's what's on your spirit? I actually had somebody yesterday. She kept saying, OK, take a breath and take it in because I was like, OK, that happened. Now we have to figure out the next thing. <laughs> Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And one of the things that she said that I had not actually thought of, but she said, if, if you don't take a moment to really experience and feel your victory, you can't share it and nobody else will be able to experience it as a victory if mm-hmm. you're not experiencing it as a victory. And it was a spectacular victory. Like I did not ever think we would be in the the yes votes were in the in the high 90s so that says something it absolutely does let's break that down a little bit um we you know for folks who didn't listen to part one also bold move to just start with part two (laughs) but i've done it on other shows so i understand could y'all just remind results oriented you know you know they're trying to get (laughs) get the end point they don't know they don't know process is what we're here to talk about but um just real quick uh, just name what the question was uh, for that folks voted on. And part one was very special. So in the it event was, of that, yeah, I just yeah. want to underscore, you know. <laughs> yeah, go check it out. People should listen to that. As part ones go, it was a pretty good part one. <laughs> yeah. Um, Shout out delay. Yeah. So the question that was on the ballot was around treatment, not trauma is the name of, you know, you know, our campaign. Um, But it asked voters, should the city of Chicago reopen all of the closed Chicago Department Public Health Mental Health Centers in support of a citywide crisis response program that dispatches mental health professionals and an EMT 
to mental health emergency calls instead of armed police officers. And so voters in three wards in the 20th ward where, where I live in was organizing in the sixth ward where Cheryl was organizing phenomenally and in the 33rd ward where 33rd Working Families was organizing, uh, voters got to vote on this question about reopening the mental health centers that were closed down under former Mayor Rahm Emanuel and also some under Daly, and then also creating essentially an alternative to police for mental health or, you know, not even necessarily an alternative, but an option that is going to send folks who are rooted in care in an understanding of mental health as opposed to police officers. And in the 20th, 6th, and 33rd Ward, over 90% of voters voted yes on that question. And so want to follow up for you, Asha, like, how are you feeling right now? How are you processing this specific moment? Over the course of the five months that we had thousands of conversations with people, like over 5,000 conversations with community members about what they thought on this issue, knocking on doors. I don't know how many times our canvassers got kicked out of the jewel parking lot trying to talk <laughs> to people, um, you know, while they helped them with their groceries, cookouts, community meetings. We called every registered voter in the 20th ward more than four times. You know, I live in the 20th ward. I'm everyone in my building, like has a little sign on the thing. Like everyone on my block has, you know, talked to me um, and had, had hundreds of those conversations. And so I knew that people were with us, whether or not all the people we talked to were going to be the same people that turned out to actually vote and felt supported and empowered to do that, I think was like the main thing that I was nervous about. I did think it was going to pass. I did not think it was going to pass by over 90%. Now we have to fight for it to be implemented. This is a you know powerful display of public opinion and hopefully leverage on decision makers who have the power to implement it. But you know, we need a pilot of treatment on trauma to be funded. We need the centers to actually be reopened and we need all of those things to be implemented well. Yeah, I, I appreciate the the advice that you got, Cheryl, and you relaying that because I think that's really helpful for me to hear too. Yeah, and so of course the over 90% and the, the win of it is big, but I think part of, at least from a little bit on the outside, what's m- most impressive is all that connecting and outreach and the campaign of this that you did. And I'm thinking about what that makes possible in terms of like familiarity for, for the next steps. And people know the name of the campaign. They've had those conversations. What was surprising and what y'all heard from talking to people that maybe you didn't expect in those conversations? Like, were there any trends or, or, you know, concerns that emerged that, that weren't what you'd expected to hear? I just want to go back just a little bit in terms of people knowing the name of the campaign. I think that actually is still something that people don't necessarily know treatment, not trauma. I think that people really relate to reopen the city's public mental health center. You know, so getting people to not be afraid of only sending mental health professionals for the majority of calls. That wasn't necessarily an unpredictable hurdle, but over time, including in it saying the majority of mental health crisis calls did not involve a crime or a weapon, the overwhelming majority. Let's send the actual folks who can help. But because with media and plot lines and 
you know, and so many times people say, oh, well, we need mental health care because that's why everybody's crazy things are happening because people have, you know, mental illness. And it's like, there may be some things that are happening because of somebody in, in crisis, but that's not why the things that are really making you afraid are happening. And I think it sounds like the connection that can be made there is about disinvestment, not about like, if we had this one thing, it would solve all the, pro- like, mm-hmm. it's of course a much more complex mm-hmm. statements word gumbo. Than just that. <laughs> yeah. Um, just, just a little note for a time. So you're an organizer's organizer. So Cheryl got to step away. You got to open up a zoom room for some folks. Yeah, I do. I you're gonna, do. And you're I will, you're I come will back. pop back on. <laughs> We'll okay. see you in a bit. Wow, David right. just organized the organizers' organizer. Look at that. <laughs> movement media, y- y'all get seeing it in real time. So we, we're we going to let Cheryl g- go take care of her responsibilities. We, we are fortunate to have Asha still here with us. You know, going back to Daniel's question of what were some of the things you heard or learned that you didn't expect to hear going into this process as somebody who's practiced and in, in having these conversations? This has been the thing that I've done a lot of like, canvassing, door knocking, talking to community about that has been honestly the most overwhelmingly popular. Mm. And I think that surprised me. In the 20th Ward, it was defund CPD organizers knocking on doors and working on this issue. And defund the police is a has become almost like its own political character um, with like a personality that people have relationships to and is very polarizing. And I know from many other years of work, when you break it down and really talk to people, when you look at the city budget survey from 2020, that 38,000 people filled out and 87% of them said they wanted to reallocate funds from the police department. When you demystify it and you take away like the things that people react to, there's a lot more unity around the reality that we need investment in communities. And those are the things that are going to keep us safe. And, you know, the overinvestment in policing and underinvestment in everything else is an expression of, of priorities around certain communities. You know, I, I will say that I, I was surprised by some of the receptiveness. There's something about talking to folks about policing. And sometimes we start with police are a problem and we need to invest in this laundry list of things because they're being used as like a catch-all to respond with violence to any and every type of problem. And I think with this, we did the opposite, which is like, let's look at one specific type of problem and figure out what might be the actual best way to deal with that thing. And I think when you start from that place, people are much more already there and with us of like, yeah, it feels like common sense to have a mental health professional respond to a mental health crisis. You know, we could, we could go through and then have like Damon, you talk about, you see a cop and you see a hundred different jobs with a gun. Like we could talk about those hundred different jobs. What are the people, you know, who actually should be dealing with the hundred different problems we can imagine. And I think that's a place where, where folks can see what we're talking about when we talk about abolition and investment in community because we can just deal with talking about something more specific. Yeah, it seems like a really good learning opportunity for defund related organizers. It like kind of circumvents the whole one the polarization boogeymaning of it, but also you kind of answer the question of well what else should we be doing, which is always the question 
by just starting with that, <laughs> it's much more tangible. It seems like a good learning opportunity for future campaigns because you could do this, you know, blank, not trauma in a lot of different arenas, you know, education, not trauma, food, not trauma. Like there, there's, I'm not saying now you have to run 12 campaigns, but <laughs> it, it seems like a pathway. Yeah, it's it's interesting because like there's the political rhetoric side of it of like how things poll or how things play when printed in a ad, but just hearing you, Asha, talk about in conversation, there's almost like a human psychology of it of like presenting a solution first to the the brain is like okay, yes, right, as opposed to like bringing up all of the red flags that then people have to work through, like starting at the green check mark as opposed to the red X the brain of accepting information is easier to start from that place. And I want to zoom out a little bit with you because you are the person that I know that's like the most aware or plugged in or in relationship to folks doing defund abolitionist work in other cities. How would you say this referendum compares or stands out relative to like the landscape of people were able to go and vote you know, it wasn't some top-down council headline of like, oh, we promised to do this and then we're going to take that promise back. Like a popular naming of we want something else besides police. How, how does that compare to what's going on in the country from your perspective? You know, I think there are other really powerful examples of ballot initiatives that is essentially giving voters the opportunity to vote directly on an issue as opposed to vote for a person you hope will vote the way that you want them to on issues. I think there's some other really powerful examples of that. I mean, most prominently folks in Minneapolis led by Black Visions Collective led their Yes on Two campaign last year where they had a question that would have removed the police department from their city charter and created an office of public safety that would be able to hold the responsibility of thinking through public safety in a more expansive way. Um, And it didn't win, but it was very close, you know, somewhere around 45% of people voted in favor of a pretty radical question. And I I think that's, it's like 67,000 people voted in favor of, of that thing. And, you know, so, so it wasn't moved through and implemented in the end, but I think again, is like a really powerful display of public opinion of like, damn near half of the voters in Minneapolis were down to create a whole new department that would, you know, be thinking about safety in a different way than police. There was a a ballot initiative in 2020 in Los Angeles County that would have redirected some of police funds into community investment. And so I think folks are trying similar strategies. And it's important to acknowledge in this conversation that we are in a landscape where a lot of people are disillusioned by the electoral process and don't necessarily see voting as something that's going to have an impact. And I think that's like another big thing that we've dealt with and grappled with is just like, how do we engage the base of folks that have been politicized around defund and politicized, like taking action by going to a protest to see this as a meaningful way of participating too, and kind of being willing to use all the tools that we have. And, you know, I I believe that we have to engage and wrestle with systems and fight for there to be better people in office than there are. They may all be bad, but they are not all the same. And it's like, you know, picking who we want our targets to be, picking who we want to be fighting with and who we think we can win some things for. 
And then, you know, with this, demonstrating that leverage of, of we are going out and vote. And these are the issues that people are caring about. Um, and we were there on election day at half of the, the polling locations in the 20th Ward. And one of the things we consistently heard voters saying was like, we're here to vote on this thing. Like, I'm not excited about the candidates, but I'm excited to vote on reopening the mental health centers. I'm excited on voting on, you know, investing in this alternative system. Like you asked me to talk about nationally, but um, no, you're doing I, live, great. <laughs> <laughs> I live in Woodlawn. Uh-huh. Uh, which is in the 20th Ward. Shout out to Jeanette Taylor's, our, our alderwoman. Um, and there was a clinic that was closed down in Woodlawn, down the street, that people remember and stop Cheryl's organization and other folks. When mom was going to close down the Woodlawn Clinic, community members occupied the clinic, chained themselves to it to try to stop it from being closed down. And people remember that. People who've been in this neighborhood for a while that we've talked to, like, remember when there was a clinic, they remember that community fought hard to try to save it. And that is something that is deeply felt and and has, you know, moved folks to want to take action. Even remember, there was like a young woman, a neighbor of one of our organizers who we saw just walking down the street and we were like, did you vote? Like we had talked to her about the issue. She was supportive, but she was like, I don't believe in voting. But we got her to vote for the first time on Election Day. She was like, you're not going to convince me to vote for a candidate, but I'll go in there and just vote on your question. (laughs) Wow. And, you know, I think maybe there's some other stuff you should probably vote on on the ballot. (laughs) But um, I think just like giving folks an opportunity to vote directly on an issue is a really powerful way of engaging people who, you know, may just be uh, disillusioned about about other things. And of course, it's not a be all end all like voting is not going to get us free. Also going to protest, not going to get us free on its own. Yeah. We got to do a lot of different things. Yeah. What a fucking great anecdote that was. That's, that's such a, a, a just perfect story. Of, just storytelling <laughs> of the new of the new possibilities of like, you know, people like to sterilize these notions of civic engagement or write off people who rightly don't engage in certain forms as ignorant or irresponsible or passive. But just that's just such a clear example of people are politically aware and conscious. And it is a, in some ways, a, I hate to use this word, but like rational decision of like relative to my effort and my belief in these people, I don't want to participate in that type of action, but I am willing to participate if more opportunities are made possible for me. And so like to the almost becoming a beautiful cliche now of like abolition is about Newt's forms of presence. Like that is a type of presence that was, was newly made possible through this work. So I'm, you know, I'm over here gushing and that that's just one of my gushes. That's (laughs) one, one of many. Yeah. I I also think part of what's beautiful about it as a form is that there's no possibility of a lie to it. Right. Like when part of, I think what disillusions people is politicians lie to them all the time and promise things they can't promise. But you didn't say if you vote for this by December, the clinic will be back open and we will have this team. Like a referendum is is a tactic. And then you can also talk about that as a tactic rather than like a promise that won't be kept. Right. So people, I, I would imagine that kind of like transparency of this is what we can actually offer based on this is part of what might move otherwise disillusioned people to participate. Yeah. And we're right there with you. Like I voted on the thing and I want that to mean that, you know, the people that represent me in city hall are going to do something about it. And I'm going to fight really hard to, to try to make that happen. So I know there's loads of debriefs and processing to do, but from like where folks in the campaign are sitting now, is there 
parts of the strategy that y'all want to emphasize to community or to people that came out and voted of like what this means, what they should be looking forward to, or if there are ways to plug in to continue this fight towards enforcement? So speaking of Daniel talking about politicians lying, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, Lori Lightfoot campaigned on reopening the mental health centers and like she did on pretty much everything else. Unsurprising to me, unfortunately, was a surprise to many of the folks who voted for her, Um, you know, backtracked on that and is pushing an approach that's different from what we actually need in two ways. One, it's a privatized approach. So she campaigned on reopening the public mental health centers. The public piece is important because what the city is currently doing is a kind of privatized approach. So they're like regranting funds to nonprofits. CCW, the Collaborative for Community Wellness, has done like, you know, a landscape research of what, what these nonprofits look like. They're all kind of barriers. They're not all accessible to people in terms of ability, language, um, whether or not you have insurance, location, just even the hours that they're open. And then the workers tend to not be treated as well. You want folks who are doing the hard work of supporting folks' mental health to have a union and a living wage and a like workload that they can manage so they can provide quality care. Um, and, and those things are just not the case in, in a lot of these private clinics. And so it's really important that you know, we push for a public approach and that the city doesn't kind of skirt responsibility in the way of just, you know, giving pennies compared to what's needed to kind of these private clinics that are overwhelmed and unprepared. And then two, Lori's approach is, you know, still sending armed police officers to these type of crises. People with mental illness are 16 times more likely to be killed by a police officer than other folks. And in the pilot of the model that Lori has pushed forward that sends police with mental health professionals, they have, by whatever standard, determined that police are not needed in any of those. So why have someone sitting in a car with a gun and introduce the possibility and the risk of violence and death to the situation when we know that there are, you know, mental health professionals, care workers, and peers, you know, sometimes who are who are more equipped to, to deal with those types of situations. So, you know, the results of this are overwhelming. It was an, on the ballot in three wards in the city. The sixth ward includes a precinct that has the highest number of mental health crisis calls in the whole city. The 20th ward, home to a closed clinic, a ward that experiences over-policing in, in a particular way. Um, and then the 33rd ward, the, the home ward of Rosanna Rodriguez, that kind of championed this legislation. So it's a strong display of public opinion. And, you know, we really hope to take that when we're looking critically at who is running for city council, who is running for mayor going into February and really push them to take a stance on the issue um, and make some commitment that's like a little bit deeper than lip service. And part of our leverage is saying we actually have this many thousands of voters that have shown that they really care about this thing and are going to be looking at what you do or don't do on on the issue. Do you have... And again, there may not be an answer for this, but I'm curious of the relationship to the other 47 wards. Like now that we have this data and folks have been activated and been reached out to, what does this mean for the rest of the city who may have been watching and supporting or who it may not have reached yet? Yeah, that's something we talked a lot about with, um, you know, the volunteers, the canvassers, the folks who are involved in our campaign, you know, many of whom 
don't live in the ward, but feel a personal stake in the issue. Um, and also who are like doing canvassing. People don't just exist in the ward that they live in. Um, and, you know, I send folks out with like a list of these are the doors you have to knock on and like the voters you have to find and whatever. People come across all kinds of folks who are like not registered to vote or don't live in the 20th ward. And we want to talk to everyone. It would have been less time to run a campaign where we only talk to people we 100% knew were registered voters in the 20th ward. We only spent time talking to people we know turn out to vote or are already registered and consistently do that. I could have cut a much smaller list of doors <laughs> and us do a lot less, but it was important that we engage folks, one, who don't typically turn out to vote, and two, also, you know, folks that are around that we're talking to and may not have the opportunity to vote on this on their ballot, but care about the issue because the organizing is, you know, much bigger than just this referendum in these wards. And the question is not about, do you want this thing just in the 20th ward or the 6th ward or the 33rd ward? We were able to get it on the ballot in three wards, but ultimately the question, the demand, and, and what we're trying to push forward is a citywide reopening and a citywide system. And so it is something that, you know, people across the city of Chicago have a stake in and, and should see us for them too. So something I'm, I'm struck by is just the, like, the political tactic of thousands of conversations and having multiple conversations, right? Like every political campaign doesn't do that or does not prioritize that. That was a, a specific choice. And, you know, us over here as professional conversationalists, and it looks like we got, we got Cheryl plugging back in. Welcome you back. Hi. The Zoom is up and running. Yes, thank you. Actually, it turned out that I was the only one who could facilitate. The other two people who often facilitate. Of course. Of course. <laughs> organizers got to organize. So the ice is broken over there and now you can come back. Got it. We Although, actually, what was funny is that I realized that of the people in the room, all of us were going to be in a room again at one o'clock. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, we don't need to be here. <laughs> now that that leaders, is an organizing lesson leaders have to know how to celebrate leaders have to know when we don't need to be here we're, we're getting a little toolkit <laughs> so so glad to have you back i'm gonna finish asking asha this question and we're gonna come back to you cheryl about um conversation as a as a tool and political strategy for community building for power building Everybody's not as confident in dialogue and just talking to strangers as other folks are. There's some people who that's innate for. There's some people that might be their biggest fear. Um, keeping things succinct, just the art of communication with folks. You have did hundreds of conversations yourself. I think beyond this one referendum, that's one thing we want more of and we want to take with us. How do we equip people to talk to people more, which feels like a, a weird basic question. Yeah, um, definitely something I've spent a lot of time thinking about. You know, we write talking points, we write a script, and I think there's kind of nothing that replaces just practicing and getting comfortable doing it. You know, every time I write like a canvas script and then go out and actually knock doors using it, I'm like, oh, I need to edit this to sound like this because this is how I'm going to actually say it. And then I think also like, you know, giving folks the opportunity to witness what having like a meaningful conversation with a stranger that you share a neighborhood with or share some connection to or want to build a connection to is, yeah, I think an invaluable piece of it. I think folks who are not in organizing, maybe don't 
see that happen all the time. I think we live in a world that's very like individualized. We aren't necessarily conditioned to like talk to our neighbors and um, just kind of slow down and, and have like a political discussion with someone that you do not know or aren't connected to already. Um, and so I think folks getting to witness and experience what that looks like is is important. Sometimes when we're calling folks phone banking, they're like, I'm you're they think we're trying to sell them something mm-hmm, or right. whatever, <laughs> like, you know, doing what you can in the beginning to ground in like, hey, I'm trying to build a connection because we share some stake in what's happening in this city uh, and not because I want something from I you. I don't care about your car title. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you are not from dealing services. <laughs> yeah. No, that that's really uh, phenomenal and something I, I look to see be developed in the years of like now that all these people have had these conversations, how equipped they are to continue this form of direct communication. But Cheryl, I, I want to I loop you back in and so we've talked so much about the significance of this was not a referendum to open mental health clinics abstractly, right? Like the word was reopened because there was something that was that was abandoned, destroyed, divested from. And so if you could just tell us a little bit of the history of those clinics, the importance of them and the the impact of them being taken away from our communities as you you know have been centrally connected to the effort to to keep that resource alive asha mentioned the occupation of the woodlawn clinic 10 years ago um but yeah if you could just Mm -hmm. give us a little bit of the history of the clinics and their closings you know my my understanding of the history is a little bit fuzzy actually a lot of this goes back to there was a bill that JFK signed because there was this idea instead of having people basically be incarcerated in hospitals, having services be community-based. And I think that how that happened and the progress of it took a, a long time. And I don't know when they first started opening them up in Chicago, but You know, my understanding is that a lot of the push for having these mental health centers also came out of the Panthers were really pushing for free health clinics. And also with this idea that services need to be community-based. So at the height of it, 1989, there were... 19 centers, including one that focused on substance abuse. Daily started closing some in the 90s. But then what happened is that Daily went in for another round of closures. And by this time, there was STOP. And STOP was actively working against displacement in the Woodlawn community. So one of the STOP members whose um, deeply affordable housing was saved, said, I'm really glad for everybody else. They were at the victory party, celebration party. I'm really glad for everybody else, but I'm going to have to move because they're closing my clinic. And that was how Stop got in and then really pushed against Daily. It was successful. You know, for Daily, Daily still saw his power as constituent-based. Rahm Emanuel probably did not know what the word constituent meant. 
<laughs> you have to look it up in a dictionary. <laughs> and somehow that dictionary would be privatized and owned by somebody else. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And it would be defined as the list of your highest donors. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So he went through and closed, and no amount of anything changed what he had to say. And at the time, I was driving a cab, and I had had a friend who worked as a clinician and I remember when he was getting moved around and moved around as Daly was closing them and I you know I didn't really think anything of it you know because you just think oh yeah that's what happens they they start closing down and da 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 but also I knew from him talking about it how much people rely on the services there you know, he would often go to people's homes to find them or if they had issues with leases or papers. And he, he said, you know, he often found it much easier to say and then saying, OK, bring all your paperwork here and I'll help you sort it. Just say, OK, I'll come over and sort your paperwork. And he described his job as one part therapy, one part case management and one part life coach. <laughs> <laughs> but often the people he was working with were also people who did not have a whole lot of other resources. Maybe they had support, but they may not have had anybody else who would be able to help them sort through it any more than they could. So when Rahm Emanuel closed the schools, and then the mental health centers, I would tell other cab drivers to talk to their passengers and tell them, you know, to call the mayor. <laughs> Obviously, my little feeble attempts to rally cab drivers and passengers did not help at all. So it is kind of funny to me that, you know, 10 years later is my job. So one of the things that happened with the occupation of the Woodlawn um, Center is that on the final day that it was going to be open, somebody proposed, well, let's have a party. Matt Ginsburg, Jekyll, and Alex from Stop, and, and I don't know who else, but I know they carried in chains <laughs> and padlocks in um, a cooler and they put ice and sodas on top of it. <laughs> and then they went in and they chained, chained the doors. Everybody, it included clinicians. It included people with lived experience, activists. And there's some videos of different scenes from that, including someone singing um, through the doors. She's on one side and somebody who's out on the outside is holding up a microphone so she she can be heard. Um, eventually, the police broke through the back door. It took a, a long time, so they were able to hold the center for a while. And then there were people who who basically lived across the street from it throughout the summer. Now, the Chicago Torture Justice Center is located there. So I think that that's really good. But you know, I understand from people that the Woodlawn Center was also a community hub. 
you could walk in and clients would go there if they were feeling stressed and weren't sure if they were going to have a crisis, they would walk themselves to the center and then, you know, hang out in the lobby until they decided, did they need to see anybody or were they okay? And they could um, continue with their day. Asha named a little bit about the importance of differentiating between the investment into public and private resources and services. And I know a couple of weeks ago, I just heard you, you know, speak in, in really clear terms about the importance and the reality of that divine distinction. So I just want to like, you know, give you some space to talk about the importance of that distinction and kind of what's going on right now underneath the weeds. You know, people really push back against how the referendum was worded because it sounds very clunky. You know, shall the city of Chicago reopen the Chicago Department of Public Health, Mental Health? But the reason that that very clunky language is there is because we wanted to make it very clear that we were talking about the public centers, you know, where where somehow this concept of all public infrastructure can get privatized, you know, and selling off our streets or sell off our parking. Or when the centers were closed, there was this promise that, oh, we're going to make sure you get placed and other things that never happened. There was no tracking of people to make sure. So they just kind of vanished. In the city's eyes, obviously, they didn't vanish. But it's like, okay, we no longer have to have any responsibility for you because we're not keeping those records. And those are the same things that happen, you know, when they close the schools. What happened to those people? And I would add, sorry, just the same thing that happened when they closed public housing as well. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. And with public housing, it was really interesting because not only did they close public housing, but during one of the waves of it, they really want to make sure they didn't have to be bothered because they were moving people out to different suburbs and say, here, we'll, we'll pay for you to move to Elgin. We'll pay to you to move here. And I remember having conversations with passengers and somebody said, yeah, well, they're saying if we move, they'll give us a, a washer and dryer. There's a Southern expression that I really love called, here's your hat, what's your hurry? Great. I feel like that was like, oh, here's your hat. Oh, you're leaving so soon? <laughs> 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 yeah. So, so I think it's really important to to re, you know, like we have to start with building, rebuilding public infrastructure, and also we have to claim our right to it because we don't have a collective belief that we have a right to public infrastructure, and also public has become a word that has a lot of negative connotations. It's like, oh, well, we want the private because the private is better. And right now with with this administration, whenever they talk about the centers, they always say, well, not everybody wants to go to the public center. We talked to somebody who said they had a negative experience in it. 
Now, the irony of it, the person who makes that point the most is Matt Richards, who is the deputy commissioner of behavioral health. So literally, the public centers are under his purview. That's like you being the manager of a restaurant saying, well, I have to send my customers down the street because people are complaining that our food is overcooked or our bathrooms are dirty. But also they still have to pay for their meal. Right. And they still have to pay for the meal. Exactly. So I feel like we can talk about neoliberalism until the cows are brought to their private homes. But (laughs) I want to make sure we really understand what this referendum makes possible in the short term. Not, Not to skip past the win, but in the short term, what are the next steps where are opportunities to plug in? What are y'all talking about in that meeting at one o'clock? Basically, you don't have to you know, get into the details of it, but. Right. Well, because it's an advisory, it doesn't mandate that the city reopen the closed centers. But what it does is it gives us the talking point to respond The pushback we always get from the city is, oh, nobody wants the public centers. Oh, people are afraid of having crisis response without police. And this gives us a way of saying, okay, look, in these communities, people are saying, this is what we want. This is what we think should happen. When it's public, we have public accountability. Nonprofit That agency is not accountable to anybody but its board of directors. And if the board of directors decide, you know, there's more funding if you do this kind of thing as opposed to that kind of thing, there's no accountability. We need to start rebuilding our public care infrastructure because that's what we need in this, you know, in this, in this life. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And that and that's why this referendum is so important because not only, as you're saying, does it give space for people to affirm what we need, it's also a really important naming of our current reality. Because really, if you like flip the language of the campaign, what we've been receiving is trauma and not treatment, right? That displacement is more than just raising rents or closing down buildings. It's also divesting from the resources that people depend upon and the structures that that are at the foundation of the community. By showing folks that we need treatment, not trauma, it's also making clear that the absence of that or that the inverse has been true, which I think is really, really powerful. Yeah, I, I agree. And And with that importance, what do listeners need to know about Next Steps? One of the things that listeners can do quite easily is reach out to their alders and say, okay, this might not have been on my ballot, but I support it. I expect that this is something you support. You know, I would like to make it like snow was once upon a time where people thought, oh, we won't get elected or reelected if we don't promise to make sure that the streets are are plowed. <laughs> that's a great that's a great benchmark. For yeah, Chicago yeah, yeah. Campaigns. That was a, that was a top of a ballot issue. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and ran mayors out of office. Yeah. Asha, yeah. Anywhere else that folks should plug into? Yeah, just affirm what Cheryl said. You know, make sure that your alder knows as you're looking at who is running, whether that's for city council or for mayor. This is one of the questions they should be asking. This is one of the things that you should be judging them on. And yeah, you know, there will be 
more to come in December and January of ways that folks can come to things in person that we'll be hosting forums, community meetings, some protests and all of that. So folks should, should look out for, for those things from the campaign. Um, and yeah, really use this as a, as a talking piece as you're being critical of the folks that are in office or trying to be. Well, congratulations to y'all both yeah. uh, and all the other brilliant folks who've been working on this campaign. We're so glad that this would have been a much sadder debrief uh, <laughs> if things had gone another way. So yeah, no. happy to debrief and joy with y'all. Big shout outs to, to y'all, to, to you, Cheryl. You know, so much love to Stop and, and CCW um, for all the work that y'all have been doing for years to even make this possible and to to be ready to to mobilize in this moment. Um, and and shout out to Defund. I was able to see so much of the canvassing and like the the setup as folks were, you know, housed in Breathing Room and reaching out to our neighborhood near the Breathing Room campus in ways that like have never been done before, which really proud of. Uh, and then Asha, you know, you're just my favorite human being. <laughs> uh, but also, you know, for folks who listen to part one, uh, I said this to you personally, but I want to just say it on record, you know. We, we talked to Delane about the politics and about the organizing, but they also shared a very personal and vulnerable story about the trauma they experienced in our violent mental health system and not only named like the world that they want or what they wish could have been, but also named the real support that they had that was in somewhat unique um, and that you were at the forefront of providing that support. So I just want to name like in the midst of doing the big picture and knocking doors and talking to strangers, you embody and showed up for your people in ways that aren't seen or weren't seen before in high leverage situations in the way that we need towards the world that we want to build. So I just want to thank you for being who you are and doing all of this work and thank y'all for um, this really transformative campaign that will will shift the the future of our space. Yeah. Thank, thank you, Damon and Daniel, for yeah, creating space for us to have this conversation and and holding us and for holding Delane with love as they, you know, share their story. You know, this is um, not some faraway issue. It's something that that we need and that we needed. Yeah, just really appreciate y'all for, for this. Of course, listeners, consider yourself briefed and debriefed. <laughs> we'll be back with new episodes, folks reshaping the culture of our city and beyond for the more liberatory and creative. Much love to the people. Peace.